Okay, so we'll continue on in our study today of Genesis chapter 4, and we introduced um, this section last week, and we're really kind of titling the overall section that we're looking at. We're calling it A Portrait of Life in a Fallen World. That's really what we're sort of focusing our thoughts on as we look at Genesis chapter 4. And we're breaking the study, the overall study, into three main sections. The first section uh, being what we began to introduce last week, and it's the section that focuses obviously on these two main characters of Cain and Abel. But we added a little a note to that part one of Cain and Abel that when you look at the study of Cain and Abel, and as we're expanding it even more today, um, the thing that kind of, uh, I think, thrusts before us as we look at this is that in, in the context of life in a fallen world and looking at Cain and Abel as sort of representatives of life in that fallen world, there is no such thing as a middle ground. Okay, That's the, the, the main principle that we're, we're drawing out as we look at these two individuals as well as the societies that they represent. The second part that we're going to focus on later is uh, just this whole area of cities and culture and common grace that is available um, or is is manifest in the context of of just general culture and the the building up of cities, and and we see the beginnings of that in this chapter. And then the last part that we'll look at is really uh, focus on the birth of Seth and this, this theme of preservation and hope. Of, of the righteous. And so we'll get to that down the road. But today we're going to continue our focus on Cain and Abel. And um, just by way of review, um, well, actually, let me just read the section uh, with you, along with you in Genesis chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 to 16. We'll get the overall passage kind of set in our minds, and then we'll, we'll do a little bit of review before we get into the focus of our time today. So Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 begins, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So as we continue to look at this portrait of life in a fallen world, as I said, we introduced last week these two important figures, these two first sons of Eve, Cain and Abel, And as we probe into the narrative of Genesis chapter 4, we see an immediate contrast, or we might say we see an immediate conflict um, that emerges between these two men. And we're, we're looking at them not only, as I said before, as individuals, but also as representatives of two very distinct societies, the Society of Cain and the Society of Abel, or you might say the Society of the Righteous, excuse me, the Society of the Unrighteous and Cain, and the Society of the Righteous and Abel. And as we move forward, um, we spent most of our time last week drawing out uh, a principle that's really based not on um, sort of an implicit, or excuse me, an explicit um, takeaway from the text or the narrative there, but really a general observation. Namely, that when you look at this account in Genesis chapter 4, the account of Cain and Abel, what you can just quickly and, and readily observe 
is that Cain is the figure that dominates the narrative. It, it is mostly about Cain. Most of the detail uh, centers around Cain. The dialogue uh, between uh, God and, and, and Cain is, is a big part of this, um, this narrative. So, so just by, by mere observation, we see that Cain is the primary figure in this part of the narrative. And so I, I kind of use that as a springboard to make a larger point or to draw out a larger principle about the nature of life in a fallen world. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that if you just look at this in, in one way, you see that Cain is the one that gets most of the press or most of the airtime in the narrative. He's the one that is the one that, that has most of the focus on him. And when you look at Abel, just in, in the context of the narrative and how much text is spent there, Abel is really uh, a mere blip on the screen, if you will. He's, he's just a mere small section of this, this text. He doesn't take up a lot of textual real estate, in other words. And, and so, um, and, 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 the, and the interesting point there is that, that Abel, I mean, a major important thing to note here is that Abel is the one who's offering and him himself is accepted by God. So the whole focus really centers on the one whose offering and himself was not accepted and his whole response to it. And, and, and so I use that as an opportunity to just make the point that really that is a picture of what it's like in a fallen world, particularly for those who are of the Society of Abel, those who are, who are part of the redeemed, those who have been made righteous, those who are believers, followers of Christ. Is that, like it says in Matthew chapter 7, we enter by a narrow gate. So there's two gates. There's a wide gate, a broad path, and it leads to destruction, and many are they that enter by it. But there's a narrow gate that is hard and fewer than them that enter by that gate. So it's just the principle that for, for those who are of the society of Abel, those who are of the society of the redeemed or the righteous, that we are not the society of the dominant. We are not the society of the popular. We are not the ones who are going to get the most press. We're not going to be the ones in, in a fallen world who get the most airtime or the most notoriety or the most recognition. In, in addition, I made the point last week, and we talked about it at length, about how um, the, the, the walk of the faithful, the walk of the Christian, the walk of the Society of Abel is characterized by one of faithfulness, of humility and perseverance in the midst of trials, in the midst of all the accoutrements of a fallen world, not a one of worldly acclaim or domination or controlled by force, or even pervasive cultural influence by popular vote. And we spent quite a bit of time on, on how sometimes that can manifest itself in ways where we adopt the mindset as those in the, the confessing Christian world can adopt a mindset that the objective and even, you know, even the goal that we're seeking is one of cultural domination. And I don't mean like necessarily domination by force, but just... We, we believe that it's our mandate and almost our right to have complete uh, predominant influence in a fallen world culture. Now, we are to be pursuing influence, and we're to be pursuing the, the spread of the gospel, but that's not the, the objective. The objective is not winning, not winning the culture, not winning control. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but... But it's an important point. In 1 Peter, we looked at that, how uh, we, are, we are those who are elect exiles, as Peter addresses uh, those, that, those, those readers of that time. He calls them elect exiles that are facing trials, many, many types of trials. These kinds of trials uh, uh, often would lead to persecution in that day and time, um, even, even threat of death. Um, but those trials were testing the genuineness of the faith, and that... They were called to a life of submission, submission to secular authorities, and even those corrupt and antagonistic to them. There was, a, there was a, to be a heart and a mind and a life of submission. And that submission, that life of submission, was based upon this hope and this belief and this trust that, as it says in 2 Peter 2, verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or again, in verse 15 of chapter 2, 
that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So this, this idea, this principle, that we are not a part of the dominant society in culture, in our culture, in our day and time. We are, we are the minority. We are not the ones that are going to get all the press and the worldly acclaim. And in fact, the call on our lives is not one to pursue that as an end in and of itself. But we're called to a life of faithfulness and humility and even submission to secular authorities, even antagonistic or corrupt authorities. It's a very different uh, way of thinking than what is, what is common. Now, I, I made this principle, I made a big deal of this principle, but I want to get a little bit of feedback from you. Why, why would you say this is such a critically important principle for us to understand as believers living life in a fallen world? Why is it so important that we understand this principle and live by it? Well, we, we need to be salt. Uh, if, if, we have, if we're not salt, if we're just existing but not living the life, what good are we? We're not glorifying God in any way. Okay, so as a, as a, a means of making our witness and our testimony most effective, most... Um, vibrant, most observable, we live this way? Why else is it important for us to understand this idea, this, this principle of life in a fallen world is not one where those in the society of Abel dominate or control or have the biggest... Well, our goal shouldn't be to think that we're winning because we're only being obedient to God and over and over again, his scriptures say that we're going to be persecuted, not, right. not the winners. Right. And I think that and that's a huge one. I mean, I think that, that basically we can either set ourselves up or even in our, our witness, our example, our discipleship of others, our conversations with others, we can set others up for very, very, very erroneous expectations about what life should be like for them in the world that we live, Right. Um, we, 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 we take joy and we rejoice in the trials that we experience in this life because it, it proves out the genuineness of our faith, as Peter said. It's not that we look to avoid those trials, or it's not that the trials or the persecution or the oppression that Christians face in a fallen world is evidence of failure, or it's that we need to change strategy Somehow we got to figure out a better way, a better mousetrap in our, our Christian work or our church ministries, a better way to kind of fulfill this mission. Because obviously, as you look around, I mean, people don't like us. You look around and people are ridiculing us and they're mocking us. and they're, No, that's not, that's not the point. But I think that, as we talked about a little bit last week, it's very easy for Christians and bodies of Christians to get lulled into a certain mindset that says that it's kind of like a pragmatism, that um, we validate the, um, the, the clarity and um, effectiveness of our, our, of our ministry or our mission by virtue of worldly standards of popularity or influence rather than the counter, which is faithful Christians might be few and might be oppressed and might be ridiculed and might not be popular at all. In fact, that's the order of the day. So this is an important principle for us to understand as we think about this bigger point of Genesis chapter 4 and understanding life in a fallen world or a portrait of that. Yeah, it's um, um, it's a good question. I and I, and I do I do recognize there's an element of sort of subtlety here that is that can be a little bit confusing. Um, the desire in the heart of every believer is that the the name of Christ would be magnified and glorified to the ends of the earth. Right? That and proclaiming that message with clarity and boldness and hope is is the mission. Right? So. The, the, the principle here is not one of um, sheepish resignation to being 
you know, the lowliest of the lowly. I'm trying to make a point here of what I think is the, the subtle deception for many and the temptation for many in a fallen world who name the name of Christ in that they begin to measure effectiveness or measure um, faithfulness to the mission by worldly outcomes, by measures that they can look around and say, look how big this is, look how many people came to this, look how many followers I have on Facebook, or I mean, whatever, these different measures that are very worldly and secular in nature, or the absence of those kinds of, you know, secular or worldly or pragmatic outcomes, the absence of those results in a change in strategy that really is off mission. It's not just it's not just a change in sort of, you know, trying to be more effective, but it's, it's really moving off of what the core mission is. If we, if we have as our primary motivation to be, you know, bigger is better or more is better or more is good or more is right, then we're really missing a fundamental principle of life in a fallen world as a Christian. Isn't it a problem with pride? Uh, yes. We want to be accepted. Right. And yet what you're saying is what we really should be wanting is Christ being accepted. Right. And when we're not accepted, we're saying, oh, what did I do wrong? Right. And we end up changing our message. We alter the message, or we, we might um, sort of take the rough edges off the message. You know, when you think about the evangelistic endeavors of Christ, I mean, there were some pretty rough edges there, right, in his communication. And so sometimes we, we think that we need to, in, in, in an effort to find this middle ground, right, we want to see if we can kind of all come together in this middle community, this neutral ground. In fact, um, the um, well-known apologist and theologian Cornelius Van Til, in his whole presuppositional apologetic model, would call it the pretended neutrality, this notion that there's this neutral ground that unbelievers and believers can kind of come to, and we can all, I can come over here from my unbelieving side, and the believer can come from their believing side to this neutral ground, and we can maybe convince or compel more people if we meet them in the middle. It's called a mug lump. you got your mug on one side and your wump on the other. I've never heard that term. Never heard that Sitting term. Sitting on the fence, you can't do it. Yes. Would would an example of this uh, be like the pastor of a mega church who has watered down the gospel in order to get in more people? I think so. I think that that's a good example of on a more corporate level or a more sort of institutional level. Um, but I think that we wrestle with it individually too. I think another good example we we alluded to it last week is kind of in the political arena, where we set about to. Um, where what is a, just sort of a, a normal and accepted civic you know, opportunity and duty that we have. We can vote and we, can, you know, we have freedoms in this country that allow us to participate um, in the electoral process and to have some level of influence over um, those that represent us in various areas of government. And I, I mean, I, I, like I said last week, I would advocate our involvement and engagement in that. But that's not the mission of Christ. And I think that what could happen is that we can become overly influenced by a conservatism, a political conservatism, and have that sort of be confused with gospel mission. And we start, and when, the only way you can measure that is by outcomes, right? By political outcomes. So, anyway, I, I think the point is, I'm not. Tr- I don't. I don't want us to get overly focused on um, trying to analyze all these sort of outside examples, the focus really is back on us to maintain an an attitude and a posture and a disposition focused on faithfulness, faithfulness to the Word of God, faithfulness to the mission of Christ. Yes? I mean, that's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. Um, First of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's an echo of First Peter as well. I mean, it's not that there, you don't want to have influence. It's just the the manner in which you believe that influence is achieved. And um, 
what you believe that influence is centered around. If it's centered around people coming to faith in Christ and embracing who God is and embracing the word of God as, as his revealed word and authoritative and inerrant, I mean, if, if it's that, then great, more the merrier. Let's, I mean, it's, it's not about that. I mean, that's what I'm saying. The focus is on what, what faithfulness, what that faithful walk looks like, what, what the mindset and the thinking that's informing that faithful walk is about. And then we just walk and we just live. And our influence is either going to be them, as, as Peter said, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, or they'll, you'll put to silence the um, ignorance of foolish people, or they'll come to faith in Christ as a result of your witness and your testimony, or you'll be maligned and sidelined and maybe even persecuted unto death. But faithfulness and what that looks like doesn't change. It's the same. The mission is the same. Any other comments on that before we move on? I just want to kind of give you an opportunity to engage on that a little bit more. Clear as mud? What was your statement? <laughs> okay. So, as we come back to Genesis chapter 4 then, um, and we see this dominant focus on, on Cain as a representative of the dominant nature of unbelief in a fallen world, um, we also looked at some, some commonalities or some comparative uh, points here. We just kind of introduced them last week. Um, but interestingly enough, as we... we, we well, let me, just, let me just highlight them again, and then I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit more on them. We, we talked a little bit last week about how both Cain and Abel were born into an environment of faith and hope and dependence upon God. We see how Eve, uh, Eve um, Eve's comment there says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So they're both brought into this environment where there's this dependency upon God, this recognition that God is the one who brings life and gives life and sustains life. Um, there's, an, there's an indication that Adam and Eve had repented and were walking in faithfulness. And so they both were born into that environment. They were both given the common grace and blessing of work. This has this identification that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And we also said that both of them were worshipers. I mean, the big part of the focus of the text is on these acts of worship um, and what they brought to the Lord as their act of worship. And so both were worshipers. Now, we said last week that, that the, though there are these comparisons, that that's really where they end and the, the contrast really begins but if you, really, if you really evaluate even these points of comparison or commonality a little more closely, if you, if, you, if you look at them with a little more thoughtful reflection, even these points of comparison on the surface, they really become points of contrast as well. So that's what I want to work through today, especially on this, this first point. And we said both were born into an environment of faith and hope and dependence upon God. Um, we have to assume that they were taught Genesis 1 through 3, maybe not... Not certainly not because they had you know the text of Genesis one through three before them, but because they had the people who actually lived firsthand through it. Right? I would tend to believe that mom and dad would be maybe having some conversations with them about the events of um, the beginnings. So they were brought up in this environment, and so there's a firsthand heritage there of of experience of the events that we're studying. Um, they were both image bearers of God. They were both created and knew his presence. They understood his presence. So, so in particular, they were both born of Eve and, and had firsthand experience or, or handoff experience uh, passed on to them of, what, of the events that took place prior to their birth. But then in general, they were also image bearers of God and they understood the presence of God in his created world. So the most, I think, explicit passage that, that explains this to us more clearly in, is in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, that says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. So this is, this is the, the general point. Because God has shown it to them, for his invisible visible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So this, this knowledge of God, both of them had. Yes. <laughs> a question like in verse 6, it says, 
uh, verse 7, if you do what is right, now in the translation you were using, it says, if you do what is uh, well. And the question is, how do they know right from wrong? Because they didn't have the Ten Commandments, and yet they had their parents to teach them, and apparently there was a communion with God. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think that you have to you have to assume a a communi- I mean, there's communication. I mean, the dialogue actually unfolds there before us to see the nature of that. Um, and so, yes, I mean, you're talking about a unique environment in which, and even even the expectations of God, and even there's there's an well, and we'll get to this when we get to this point on on the nature of worship there. But there's a there's an implication that they they knew what it meant to. Bring an offering before the Lord. I mean, there was it was like a it, it was just an assumed part of their life, um, is what you see implied in the text. Can I make a little comment on that as well? Sure. I think it's interesting too, though, that when you know Adam uh, was his sin was covered, he tried to do it himself, mm-hmm. and it didn't work, and God covered his sin with a, with a sacrifice of a life for a life. That substitution, I think, that was something that was passed on that. Death was required, blood was required, substitution was required, those kinds of things. And I think when that carries over, you see you see Cain bringing to God that which is from the curse, the cursed ground. He's offered, offering that to God, and, and Abel picks up on this thing that was taught by his parents. Yes. Blood is required. Yeah, we're going to get to that as well. We're going to, we're going to elaborate on that when we get to the point about worship and the nature of their worship. Yes, okay. Yeah, so... That very, very, very true. I'm really trying to draw a broader, broader picture here of this, this principle that there is no middle ground. Okay, When you think about not just the, the text itself about Cain and Abel, but this principle that there is no middle ground, but there is some common ground. There's some commonalities here. And the, the first one that we note is this: they were both born into this environment where they knew God. They had knowledge of God. And we can talk about the various ways that that would have come about, explicitly through Adam and Eve and their instruction, by the virtue of his known presence, by the fact that God comes and has a dialogue with him. We see that as it unfolds where, he's con- where Cain is confronted. But they both had this uh, experience, this knowledge of God. And it, I want to draw out the larger point that that's, the tr- that's true with everybody. That, that's the point I'm trying to make. The society of Cain, the society of Abel. The unrighteous and the righteous, everybody has this knowledge of God as it's explicitly described in Romans chapter 1. Okay? Because it's known, it's perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they were without excuse. Calvin says it this way, that there exists in the human mind and indeed by natural instinct some sense of deity We hold to be beyond dispute, since God himself, to prevent any man from pretending ignorance, has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead, the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges, that all all to a man being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker may be condemned by their own conscience when they neither worship him nor consecrate their lives to his service. Now, early on in our study... I highlighted an article that I want to bring your attention to again because I, I find it to be such a, a, a fascinating way to make the point as we see this unfolding in our day and time in our culture. This idea that everybody, everybody knows God, okay? this universality of the knowledge of God as it's described in Romans chapter 1 and as we see uh, exemplified there as well in these two representatives in Genesis chapter 4. It's this article that's entitled, Children Are Born Believers in God. It's written by Dr. Justin Barrett, who's a professor of of developmental science at Fuller Seminary. Dr. Justin Barrett, a senior researcher at the University of Oxford Center for Anthropology and Mind, claims that young people have a predisposition to believe in a supreme being because they assume that everything in the world was created with a purpose. He says that young children have faith even when they have not been taught uh, taught about it by family or at school, and argues that even those raised alone on a desert island would come to believe in God. Quote, The preponderance of scientific evidence for the past 10 years or so 
has shown that a lot, of, a lot more seems to be built into the natural development of children's minds than we once thought, including a predisposition to see the natural world as designed and purposeful, and that some kind of intelligent being is behind that purpose, he told BBC Radio. Quote, if we threw a handful on an island and they raised themselves, I think they would believe in God, end quote. Dr. Barrett said, there is evidence that even by the age of four, children understand that although some objects are made by humans, the natural world is different. He added that this means children are more likely to believe in creationism rather than evolution, despite what they may be told by parents or teachers. Dr. Barrett claimed anthropologists have found that in some cultures, children believe in God even when religious teachings are withheld from them. Quote, children's normally and naturally developing minds make them prone to believe in divine creation and intelligent design. In contrast, evolution is unnatural for human minds, relatively difficult to believe. The contrast comes here when you look at this distinction it's, it's the question not of, were they aware of God? Did they know God? It's the question of, what do they do with that knowledge? That's what draws the distinction. That's what makes the point that there is no middle ground. There is common ground here, but no middle ground. So what do they do? What, is, what do the unbelieving, what is the unbelieving world, or for our purposes, the society of Cain, what do they do with this knowledge? They suppress it. What else? Well, it goes back to Eve. Who do you believe? Do you believe God, which you've been talking with, mm-hmm. talking to, and he's been talking to you? Or do you believe what's in your own mind, which probably got there by the devil, the devil Satan? So they, they suppress the truth, and they don't honor God, they don't trust God. They trust themselves. They trust themselves. So claiming to be wise, they become fools. And then they make this big exchange, right? They, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what they do. That's what happens with the unbelieving world. Re, uh, just, just to give you another picture of this, I saw this other article, and, and it makes this point about what the unbelieving world does with the knowledge of God. This article is entitled, Born Atheists, Science and Natural Belief in God. It's by Dr. Glenn Peoples. Is atheism or theism more natural for human beings? So it's the same question that the Barrett article is addressing. But he says, according to online author Tim Covell, quote, everyone is born atheist, religion is learned. So a completely different presupposition here. Similarly, over at the Rational Response Squad, you're treated to the same claim that, quote, many people don't know it, but everyone is born an atheist. It's not until a child has religious beliefs pushed on them without any evidence to support them that they think they are a theist. That's, uh, David McAfee makes the same claim, quote, now the way I see it, everybody is born an atheist and without submersion into a religion, as a child, we would most likely maintain that position, end quote. These are just examples. There are plenty more out there in the non-peer-reviewed pool of intellectual, quote, intellectual diversity that is the Internet. But is this a true claim, this author is asking. He goes on to say, in fairness, there is at least some truth here. Newborns don't have a lot by way of beliefs. They are, uh, they're ignorant as... Uh, uh, Excuse me, they're an ignorant sort, you could say. So the fact that they don't overtly believe in God or stars or carrots or causation or planets, etc., really isn't very interesting. However, when people call themselves atheists, they don't usually mean to convey their ignorance. It's hardly fair game to point out what babies don't know as grounds for any claims about what's natural or intellectually developed as adults believe, uh, intellectually developed adults to believe. To simply talk about what babies actually know is one thing and something pretty uninteresting at that. What is more interesting is to talk about the kind of beliefs that babies, unaided by religious education, naturally form as their minds develop. It is here that comments like those above are quickly culled from the pool of those that can now make it to the level of scientific respectability. They are wrong. Children are not natural atheists, after all. This was driven home for me again when I picked up a recent issue of New Scientist, 
titled The God Issue, The Surprising New Science of Religion. It was intriguing, intriguing to see the editorial called, quote, Know Your Enemy, which read along the lines of, We Need a New Battle Plan. It nonetheless quite candidly accepted that, quote, Children are born primed to see God at work all around them and don't need to be indoctrinated to believe in him, end quote. So this is from the New Scientist magazine, and basically the, the nature of the article is, We Need a New Battle Plan. We need a new way to help them suppress the truth and unrighteousness because naturally they're going to believe in God. And we've got we to be aware of this. Listen to this, this guy's quote in this New Scientist article. Religious claims still wither under, under rational scrutiny and deserve no special place in public life. So there's his, there's his predisposition, right? Religious claims still wither under rational scrutiny and deserve no place in public life. But it is a call for those who aspire to a secular society to approach it rationally, which means making more effort to understand what they are dealing with. Religion is deeply etched in human nature and cannot be dismissed as a product of ignorance, indoctrination, or stupidity. Until secularists recognize that, they are fighting a losing battle. So when Romans says that the unbelieving world suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, the point there is it is a concerted, ongoing, relentless effort to do that. And this is a good example of that. This, this particular scientist is not just saying um, religion is stupid or believing in a creator is, is irrational. They're saying and making the acknowledgement that people innately develop to believe in a creator and we, to suppress that belief, need to establish a different battle plan. So again, I make the point, there is no middle ground. It goes back to the verse that says we are created in God's image. It's hard to get that image out of us. That's right. They have to work at it. But don't you think that public schools have done a good job of convincing the kids that the, earth, that the world just happened by chance? Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. And that's, to me, that's a part of that, that suppression effort. And I think that in, in, you know, apart from the grace of God, that's what, every, that's what everyone does. Apart from the illuminating work of the Spirit and the grace of God, the truth of God's Word penetrating the hearts and minds of people, that's, what, that's where everybody ends up. Now, they may not necessarily be focused in their suppression on issues of, of creation or evolution or origins. What oftentimes happens is people have a generic belief in God that satisfies that innate nagging, but it's not the God of Scripture. It's, it's the God who they may pray to when they're in a jam, or it's, it's sort of the God of their own making, or it's a God of convenience for them. And so it satisfies that innate you know, reality of acknowledgement, but it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy truth. So, while there's common ground here, and this is, this is the point, while there's common ground here, there's no middle ground. Do you understand the difference between the two, the point I'm trying to make here? We can't approach the mission of Christ in a fallen world as though we have this place out there that's somewhere between where we are and where the unbelieving world is, and for us to be gracious and compassionate and generous and thoughtful and caring, we go to that middle ground place, that middle ground area of ideology, of belief, of lifestyle or practice or whatever it might be, whatever your accoutrements you might want to put to it. We go out to that place and that's where we engage. That's not, that's not what we're called to in this fallen world. Can you give me a practical application of how I can put this difference is this going to make in my day-to-day life? How am I going to behave differently if I have this concept that you're putting forth? Okay. So... Richard, I was just thinking that we can't meet an unbeliever in a place where we surrender our convictions about where ultimate truth comes from. So in other words, we can't 
talk to someone out in the world, we can't share the gospel with somebody, and begin by saying, well, let's just suppose, you know, God doesn't exist, or let's just suppose our, our place is always to proclaim from the scripture what the truth is. We bring our presupposition. Mm -hmm. We bring our conviction that the scripture is the source of truth, the right place of our worldview, and we convey that to them. And I think what people sometimes uh, you know, be uh, believe is I can set the scripture aside and I can, through logic or through philosophy or through something like that, meet the world where they are and argue on their terms and get back to scripture. But what you're saying is you can't do that. There's no neutrality with them. There's right. a antagonism with them against the things of God. And so you're not going to meet them in this neutral territory where they've set aside their presuppositions. They're hostile to God, and they're hostile to his people and to his word. Right. So practically, that's the way it works out for me, is I'm always reminding myself that when I go speak to an unbeliever, my job is not to try to find some territory where they won't feel threatened. My job is just simply to speak the truth, mm -hmm. to claim the truth. And let God do the, do the work. And I would, I would say from a, from a little bit of a different approach there in terms of just practical application, I also think that this principle speaks to, um, to this idea of, of not being overly targeted in our approach to unbelievers from a moralistic standpoint. So we, you know, we... We're in a work environment, let's say, and we work, we, we are compelled and forced by virtue of our job and the, the nature of the work on a day-to-day -day basis to be in consistent communication and contact and interaction that with an unbeliever, openly unbelieving, maybe even a lifestyle obvious kind of unbeliever, unregenerate person who just, by their lifestyle, completely denies the claims of Christ and the gospel on their on their lives. But yet there's, there's a social component to that, and there's interaction, there's communication, there's sort of a, a sharing of, of elements of life that take place, even in the context of the, work for, of, of the workplace. But I think depending upon the, the nature of that person's um, exhibition of their unbelief, maybe in lifestyle choices, maybe you know, their social circles or how they choose to spend their spare time or whatever, that we become overly targeted on a lifestyle issue, and we're trying to kind of redeem them from that lifestyle decision. Does that make sense? You mean we're attacking the symptom rather than the cause? That's right. And we get focused on, um, we, get, we basically get focused on morality as opposed to reconciling them to God through Christ, a, a, the redemptive message of the gospel of repentance and belief and faith. Now, I'm not saying you would never touch or talk about some of those outward manifestations, but I'm saying in our, in our, in our focus, and our thinking, we're, we're, more, we're more intent on trying to get them to stop doing this or whatever, and, and it just kind of can cloud our, our approach and our, and our view of them, just how we view them and how we view them and in, in why God has placed us in relationship with them and then, therefore, how we interact with them. And I would just argue that faithfulness in articulating the truth, uh, being a witness to the grace of God in your own life and testifying to that, um, how that comes out naturally in the, in the communication about what you do with your time and you know, what, what you value. All that should be natural and, and free-flowing from the perspective of communicating clearly the truth of the gospel not so much trying to say, wow, they're an unbeliever and it's obvious because they do this, this, and this, and this, and I've really got to convince them that, you know I'm saying, it's just, a, it's just a different approach. It can cloud our, not that we necessarily articulate it that way, but it can cloud our approach and our view of them and therefore our interactions with them. You were going to say something? They are not, um, they're not 
we do have a commonality with every single person that walks on the face of the earth is that we're all sinners who stand before a God mm -hmm. who um, has sent his son. And so, I mean, I've actually, well, I've actually thought this through because, you know, um, I, like I have a hairstylist who is obviously openly homosexual. I mean, I know that. I'm waiting for the day while he's, you know, probably, hopefully not destroying my hair when he's asking me questions. <laughs> um, where do I stand? You know, um, you know and, and I think I would have to say to him, you know, you and I are not different and that we're both created beings by God and we both stand before a righteous God who loves us. You know, so there is a commonality and when we're talking to people who are um, very different than we are, that, that that really is the commonality. And mm -hmm. my, um, my sins are no more or no less than anybody else's ever. Right. There's, there's nothing that brings me to God better than anybody else. Right, so in that situation, you can speak the truth clearly and, and honestly and openly um, at the risk of having your hair messed up or not. I don't know. how I can't, I can't really gauge that risk. I mean, you can do that, but, it's, but your approach, it's not like you're trying to save them from homosexuality. I mean, you're, that's, just, that's just a manifestation of their unbelief and their sinfulness. It happens to have you know, larger implications in the culture and in, you know, consequences maybe in families and all that sort of, I mean, there's implications and consequences that, that are unique to different manifestations of our sin. So I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying that, you're right, the nature of that witness to them, it's not, it's not unique or different because of that particular lifestyle um, that that person is invested in. In their sin, so I think we forget that when we're reading down at the basic, we're arguing against Satan, and Jesus, when he faced Satan, used scripture as the pastor points out. Right. Go back to scripture and face Satan with the truth. Right. Yep. I, I remember uh, a few years ago at the counseling conference, Stuart Scott said something in more in reference to raising children, but he said, you know, when you're raising them, don't have everything you do be, you know, just going to church or reading the Bible and doing all of these, you know, Christian things with them. Make sure you're investing in their interests and doing other things outside, you know, because he's like, when you have a kid that maybe falls away or, you know, decides to reject, you actually have some common ground to still have a relationship with with them and still maybe have an opportunity to share the truth with them from that perspective, because if it if everything you did was just centered around you know, church and having family devotions and doing all these things, they're going to be completely turned off to, to, what, you know, to your life and to be, even being around you. Um, and that's kind of helped me in you know, having relationships with, with people, co-workers and different people uh, because it's, you know, it's like, okay, be interested in their lives. Be interested in you know, things that you know, as a Christian you can be interested in. But because um, that gives you some of that common ground to develop a relationship on. And, you know, as you're talking with them about these things, they see those differences. They see you making different choices or reacting to situations differently. And, and you know, through that, you have opportunity to share, you know, share the truth. And that's, I don't know, that's helped me a lot. Yeah, and I would just, I would just say that, you know, the, the, the distinction there is, well, first of all, I would draw a distinction between Parenting, the parenting relationship, and you know, pretty much every other social relationship in terms of the responsibility and the accountability we have as parents and in instructing our kids and what shapes that might take. Um, but when you think about, um, you know, like for example, the work relationships or what have you, neighborhood, community relationships or whatever with unbelieving people, um, I would say that the, the um, I don't know, the subtle distinction I would draw is that you have to. Um, this, this is a call for real discernment because you have to know how and when and where those lines of distinction have to be drawn clearly. And at times, because of the nature of either the conversation or the environment that you're in or whatever, um, it's almost as though that's all you've ever said to them your whole life. And there's a little bit of trepidation that we might feel 
because we know that we're coming to a place where it's like, I, I mean, I've got to say this. It's like she was talking about her, her hairdresser. I mean, she's waiting for that moment where it's like you have to, you have to draw a clear distinction, um, draw a clear eye in the sand, and, and to, not, to not shy away from those moments. And the other piece of this, too, I think, is that um, there are those that might, I think, advocate a sort of a social interaction approach or a social engagement approach that I think um, really leads to compromising truth in their own lives. In other words, it becomes very, very difficult for them to continue to walk and communicate and stand on conviction and truth because their whole evangelistic strategy has been so shaped by some ideas about what cultural engagement looks like. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're never drawing those lines of distinction really clearly because they view that as uh, uh, hampering their strategy of, of evangelism. So, again, this is very, um, this, is, this is real life, and this is, requires discernment and moment-by-moment moment discernment in every relationship. So it's not like you can put on the board, okay, here's step one, here's what you do first, and then step two, you do that, and step three, you do that, and then you'll be faithful to this. That's all you have to do. It's not like that. Um, so that's why we have to be ever growing in our understanding of the truth of God's word, always applying it, and continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and trusting God for wisdom and discernment in all these various kinds of relationships and conversations and, and all of that, because there is no formula. That's why it's a little bit hard to draw too many practical applications, uh, because there's no one that, sound, that sounds the same as the other, because um, it's just they're all so unique. Okay, so let's, let's wrap this up, and we'll, we'll move on to, to next week. Um, final statement here. Life in a fallen world consists of people who all share a common knowledge of God that is either embraced and amplified in the hearts and minds of those in the society of Abel or is suppressed and exchanged for idols by those in the society of Cain. That's life in a fallen world. That should inform how we live in this world that God has placed us in. Let's pray.